What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today we are talking about like legit one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most important topics out there, which is raising kids to be critical thinkers. All right. So my guest today is Julie Bogart. Okay. And she has a background in writing and teaching people to write and all sorts of stuff, but also she is a mother and uh, yeah, she's uh homeschooler kids. And she, she talks about this in our conversation, dives into it in her book as well. But anyways, her book, her brand new book that came out was called Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. And the second, the second I saw that title, I was like, I need this, right? I, this might be an unpopular opinion, but my girlfriend and I, for example, we, we watch every single one, every single one of those docu-series about people getting conned or scammed. And I actually have Maria Konnikova coming on in a couple of weeks. Uh, we recorded about her book, the confidence game, which is all about the psychology of why we get caught and everything like that. And yeah, I, I am of the unpopular opinion where I do think some ownership needs to be on the people getting con. And I, I don't mean to victim blame and all that kind of stuff, you know, but anyways, I often say that if my son, like if my son ever just got like brutally conned or he like joined a cult or he became a conspiracy theorist, I would, I would be like, I did something terribly wrong as a parent, or I didn't do something that I should have done as a parent. All right. Because we look around the, the landscape, we see people, you know, the QAnon followers, we see people joining these cult-like movements. We see people following gurus, all sorts of things. You know, we don't teach enough media literacy and all these other issues. So again, when I saw Julie Bogart's book, I was like, yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. All right. I, I do think that every teacher, parent, uh, I don't care if you're an uncle, an aunt, if you are just around kids in any capacity, you got to grab this book. So in this conversation, I chat with uh, Julie Bogart about this book, why it's so important, some of the different topics, um, how, how do we, you know, teach kids about critical thinking? You know, I, I think the more important uh, part of this conversation is like, how do we do this in a way that doesn't seem like you know, an added task as a parent, right? Because as parents, we, you know, we got to ensure that our kids are, you know, uh, doing well in school, that they're socializing properly, that they're, you know, working on their mental health. Like there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into being a parent. So Julie and I, we have a discussion about how to teach kids critical thinking skills without it being like this huge ordeal without saying, okay, for three hours or four hours a week, we're going to study critical thinking. And Julie and I uh, discussed some of the different methods that we personally use as parents to teach our kids critical thinking, which uh, are just kind of like, uh, you know, blended in with the everyday things that we do with our kids. But anyways, anyways, I'll, I'll shut up now, but I could talk about this topic all day long. I think this is one of the most important important things because sometimes i do think that our generations the older generations are lost and the best we can do is teach our kids to be better than we are when it comes to uh you know being critical thinkers all right so make sure you head down to the description follow uh julia on her social medias uh she's much more active on instagram than twitter i've linked that down i've linked both of them down in the description below i've linked her website but most importantly i have linked her book grab a copy 
grab all the copies, just give copies to your friends who are parents, to your friends who are teachers. Uh, if you don't have any p friends who are parents or teachers, just walk into a school with a hundred copies and start handing them out to the faculty, do whatever you got to do. All right. But yeah, before we get started, uh, make sure that you're following me on social media at the rewired soul over on Instagram and Twitter. Primarily, I need to get back to uploading more episodes to the YouTube channel, but you can subscribe over there. And lastly, do me a huge favor. Uh, if you like the podcast, if you enjoyed the podcast, even if you hate it, do me a favor, go leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. That helps a ton. I look at your feedback. The algorithms like it. It's it's super, super useful. So take two seconds, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. And if you're not yet, make sure you're following and subscribe. All right. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Julie Bogart about her brand new book, Raising Critical Thinkers. All right. Hello, Julie. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Great, Chris. I'm so glad to be here. I am so glad to have you here and discuss such an important book, which is one of my favorite topics, which is about raising critical thinkers. So before we dive into the book, for those who have yet to meet you, can you give us a little bit of your background of what you do? Yeah. So I was a freelance writer, magazine editor, and ghostwriter in my early adulthood. And at the same time was having baby after baby. I have five children mm. and I chose to homeschool them. And during those years, it became apparent that the methods I used to teach writing were really different than what other homeschooling families were doing. And that's because I came from this professional writing background. My mother has written 75 books to date. I grew mm. up around professional writing. And so very early on in my 30s, I was invited by some friends to teach them how to teach their kids to write. And that eventually snowballed into my current company, which is called bravewriter.com. And uh, that is built from this notion that self-expression is the core feature of writing and that mm. the formats follow, which is really uh, an inverse way of teaching writing compared to the way schools traditionally do it. So that company now is 22 years old. And during those years that I've been working with thousands of students, we have a trained staff and online classes and curricula, uh, I went to grad school and I was having a massive reaction to the internet. So the internet came along in my life when I was about 37. So I really remember life before the online world, but I came on at the beginning before we understood what trolling was, before we understood yeah. What is social media? Uh, we were shocked to discover that even homogeneous groups of women who were stay-at-home mothers, heterosexual, similar religious and political beliefs could argue with such force and yeah. unkindness. It was shocking to me. And so over these last 25, 30 years, I've just been fascinated with what it is about being online that has really degraded how we interact with each other about the things that we believe or the opinions we have. That combined mm. with teaching writing and educating my own kids has really amplified my passion for the topic. And I just loved doing the research for this book. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's a great backstory, and you know, I I think about a lot of the same things, and I think think that's where you and I you and I connect. So before diving into the book, uh, because I've been asking a lot of people this lately, because I've been thinking a lot about how how certain people are, right? Mm-hmm. How positive and how how much confidence we have in what we know, and that seems to be a major issue with online discourse is the arguments, and and there's this this lack of like intellectual humility. Right. Mm. And, and it kind of blows my mind because, you know, I'm a, I'm just, I'm just a guy, I'm a college dropout who loves reading books Mm. and learning about all sorts of things and everything like that. But when I see, when I see just random people like arguing with a scientist about Mm. something, I'm like, where is this confidence coming from? So, so in these, (laughs) in these years of the internet, like, what what theories do you have? Like, do you think people actually are that confident? Or something I always think about, I, I can't remember the study off the top of my head, but people feel smarter when they have their cell phone around mm. them because they have access to Google. And mm. and that's just disregarding all the misinformation that's floating around on Google. But like, do you think it's just the access to all the information that makes people feel like they're more confident? Like I've done the research. <laughs> like what what do you what do you think it is after all this contemplating over the last couple of decades? So I do have a pet theory and I put it forth in my book and I'm totally open to being challenged on it. So I'll just throw that out to the audience. <laughs> but my theory is that modern education has trained us to believe there's one right answer. And Mm. that if we identify the authority, everyone will have to agree. If you think about school and the typical classroom experience, the teacher sort of lives in this authoritative role. She uses a textbook or he uses a textbook or they use a textbook uh, that has been approved by a school board. When they go to create a test, all 30 kids in the class are going to be measured against the same answer key. There's no Mm, child in the class who can say, you know, when I read the question, it meant this to me. And that's why I gave this answer. We've already decided in advance that if you are capable of matching your answers to that key, you must be right. And if you got it wrong, you also must assent to the notion that everybody else had it right, that you have to convert how you see it. So fast forward to the internet and suddenly we're in these spaces little discussion boards, chat rooms, like buttons, hearts, um, the scrolling feature that puts you under the same kind of time pressure you felt when you were taking a test. Like if you're taking Mm. a test, you don't get to go home and think about it. You've got to like make a snap judgment in the moment and hope that you've marshaled the correct answer. I think we got online and we just assumed if we cited an authority and expressed what we thought was a fact, everyone would just fall into line. Because we'd been trained to think that's how thinking works. What happened instead is that we are all appealing to different sources of authority. And so suddenly we have this huge clash. You know, my experience versus your science versus your religion versus your politics versus where you grew up versus your marginalization. Mm -hmm. And each of these have powerful roles in our thinking. But we were shocked to find out that other people wouldn't just accept our authorities with the same level of confidence that we do. Yeah, no, I, I really, I really, I, I like that theory. Uh, it's something, it's something that drove me nuts and in a little bit, I'll, I'll give some of my rants about the education system, but it's something that did bother me, uh, you know, just being in school was that they gave you a certain path to the answer. And they're like, this is the path. This is the right path. This is the only path. 
Right. right? <laughs> and I'm like, right? well, if we get to the same conclusion or we get to the same place, like, because maybe my method's a little bit different or, you know, as long as we're, we're, you know, coming up with the, the right information that took us on that path, you know, and that's just one thing. There's, there's a lot of structure in this, this idea that, you know, there is these answers. And I like what you said too, about that, that time limit, because one of the things that I think is the biggest, one of the bigger issues about this issue with critical thinking and uh, avoiding our biases and emotions and all these things is that we don't pause, right? Like when I got into right. mindfulness meditation, changed my life. Like, I'm like, oh, I don't have to do something right this second. I can take a step back, but school doesn't really allow for that. But before before we dive into some of the issues and uh, hopefully solutions with this, first off, let's define critical thinking because that's kind of how you kick off the book. And yes. this word just gets thrown around. People are like, you need to do critical thinking while they're like explaining a conspiracy theory or something like that, right? So No, completely. I mean, yeah. it's the most common question. In fact, Dr. Barb Oakley, who wrote the foreword to my book, begins by saying that when you're at the university level, you can't even get professors to agree on what critical mm. thinking means. I think it helps to start with what critical thinking, in my view, is not. Critical thinking is not being really good at telling the other guy what they are wrong about in their own thinking. We tend to externalize. We think, well, it reminds me of what people say about driving. Everybody thinks they're a good driver and everybody thinks they're a good critical thinker. Mm -hmm. But that is because they're self-referencing. Their experience of driving tells them that they are making good judgments 99% of the time. Their experience of thinking about somebody else's viewpoint tells them that their logic is capable of deconstructing what's wrong with their ideas. Mm -hmm. So that's where we start. But in my world and in the way I wrote this book, we're talking about self-awareness. In order to think critically, we actually have to be able to notice our own bias as it kicks into gear. And we need to consider a variety of perspectives, even if they make us uncomfortable. And then when we do even draw a conclusion or render a verdict, we are actually just stating what we believe to be true for now. That's the heart of the critical thinking task. It is not defining one answer for all time, for all people in all circumstances. And unfortunately, I think critical thinking has been more about building, you know, working through these different sorts of biases, confirmation bias, the ostrich effect, misinformation, as opposed to recognizing our interaction with all that data and information that we're processing, because it's our interaction with it that defines the meaning we generate. And until we yeah. are aware that we're doing that, we not only can't give anyone else a fair hearing, but we will not actually develop our own thought life. We will stay stuck in habits of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a little litmus test that I regularly do is when I ask myself, like, would anybody say they are X, right? So if I ask anybody on planet Earth, like, would you say that you're terrible at critical thinking? You're not going to find one person who says yes, but clearly there are people who are. So that's when we take a step back and say, okay, so what, you know, how do we define this? What are some of the issues? What are some of the errors? Uh, and, you know, uh, one of the reasons this topic is so important to me 
is because, uh, you know, I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. I got sober in 2012. And the only reason I'm alive is because I was able to update my beliefs, right? I love beliefs, that. Uh, beliefs about, you know, my old beliefs were drugs and alcohol can solve all my problems, or I have this under control, or I could do this by myself. And it was completely getting rid of those beliefs, updating them that saved my life. But now I see just how this is important in all aspects. But it seems like that's one of the biggest challenges is when we're dead set on something because our ego kicks in, there's the tribalism. Like sometimes it's hard to change our beliefs because it'll get us ostracized from the group, that, right? That is a key point I make in this book. So we have our personal perceptions, all the ways that our experience dictates how we feel about something. So there are certain foods you like and certain yeah. foods you don't. And those foods you don't like are liked by other people. So we already know that there's, there can be a difference in experience that influences the reaction we have to data or information or experiences. But what's really amazing is how our loyalty to a group actually shapes our beliefs even more powerfully. So while you might say to yourself, well, I love candy, I love eating all this food. If you're a diabetic, what will change your behavior is your loyalty to the medical profession or mm. the online group you join that's diabetic and reorders how you see eating. And you will adopt those new behaviors, even though your personal perceptions are, this food's boring and I miss candy, right? Mm -hmm. So if we think about our belief systems, a lot of times they are actually shaped more powerfully by the community logic story, the narrative they tell around the things that are your personal perceptions. So religion, mm. politics, we'll talk about things like our relationship to sexuality, our relationship to food, our relationship to our fellow human beings, our relationship to health, our relationship to rights. These are all defined differently by individual groups. And if mm -hmm. we don't start recognizing how powerful that group identity is, it's very difficult to think away. I love that you brought up um, your recovery story. I go to an Al-Anon support group. I've been mm. doing that for 12 years. And one of the most powerful understandings for me about being in that space is watching people feel humble enough to reconsider their beliefs yeah. and to be sort of patient and disciplined about imagining their impact on other people and actually making space to hear what that impact was so that uh -huh. it can be amended, critical thinking starts right there. It's yeah. not necessarily about having the right ideas. Um, there's, there's this logical viewpoint that's out there that says we should be more interested in getting it right than being right. Mm -hmm. But I even take a step back from that. I think we just need to be able to get it. How <laughs> is it for that other person? How deeply does that person define their world by the criteria that is most meaningful to them? Can I imagine myself into their body enough to understand it? Yeah. That's really difficult. Yeah. I was, I was actually just writing about this yesterday. I, I made the title something like why I'm grateful for my drug addiction or whatever. And, and it's because I was a force and I was forced into a place of humility where I had to look mm -hmm. at my life and say, things are not working out. And that forced me into this humble state, but like, it breaks my heart because like, for example, with the whole, uh, anti-vax movement, because like I had to hit a rock bottom and fortunately my rock bottom wasn't death. But yeah. when, when we heard all these stories about people on their deathbed saying like, can I get vaccinated now? Or I wish mm. I got the vaccine. So I'm like, I, I hope people can get to this point where they, they realize they have to humble themselves 
uh, to, to get it right before well, something that's, like that's exactly happens. right. Humility and curiosity are guideposts in critical thinking. Um, mm -hmm. The willingness to entertain an idea that makes you uncomfortable. You know, we talk a lot about tolerance, like how do I tolerate somebody who has different beliefs? But I think that's also a misnomer. The goal isn't to sort of tolerate those weird people over there to sort of put yeah. up with them and then congratulate ourselves for being so tolerant. It's actually becoming comfortable and tolerating your own discomfort. So when you feel that reactivity surge up in you, can you keep it at bay long enough to hear what they're saying? Mm -hmm. And you know, honestly, this is a good example. When you bring up vaccines, I can tell from what you're sharing that you have a perspective about the way science defines vaccines, understanding of, of medicine, of the um, contagiousness of this disease called COVID. So the question then is, can we inhabit the view we don't agree with long enough to figure out what's animating their perspective? And, you know, honestly, what's really fascinating for me, I grew up in Southern California. My father is a personal injury attorney for 60 years. I grew up hearing medical malpractice stories yeah. my entire life. I was raised with chiropractors and nutritionists. I did not vaccinate my children when they were little. I was very much a Southern California granola kind of girl. Yeah. And that viewpoint still lives inside of me. So when I came into this, you know, current era and I had to sort of look at all of the evidence and think through my reaction. Well, by then I had traveled and lived in Central Africa and North Africa. I had to get shots for yellow fever and yeah. typhoid. And I started to have a new appreciation for the power of all of those vaccines in a way that I didn't think about it so much when I was younger or when I was putting my own children in that context. Mm -hmm. So tracing that whole journey and going on that story with someone is really powerful. You know, what do they think is at stake for them? Um, and yeah. a good question to ask when you're evaluating any information is, what do I hope will be true? Because the yeah. second you answer that question, you've surfaced your own bias. Yeah, exactly. And and I, I've mentioned this a few times in previous episodes, but the way I've been able to relate with people who are against the vaccines is my drug of choice was prescription opioids, right? Wow. And yeah, so I like I have a lot of mistrust for big pharma. So there like you go. So when that when that comes up, it's like, hey, we can connect on that. You know what yes. I mean? Yes. But what a great starting place. So I think a lot of times when we engage with other people, we're engaging with each other's projections. But most human beings are so much more complex than we give them credit for. You know, uh, that Emerson quote, I contain multitudes. We yeah. all contain multitudes. Our identities, as I talk about in the book, are sort of like a compost of so many ingredients and nutrients. And part of where our conversations can go when we're with people who see the world very differently is to ask them, what is the beautiful picture of life that you believe your view gives us? Because mm. that's why people hold their views. They don't hold them to oppress people. I mean, typically not. And yeah. when they do want to oppress people, it's because they think it will help them have a big, beautiful view. I mean, that's how Hitler enrolled a nation in yeah. genocide. He thought he was giving them a vision that would give them a life they thought was beautiful. So if we can just start there and start to appreciate what that attachment is and what's at stake for them when they consider altering their views, we've actually created a point of discussion. Doesn't mean yeah. anyone's going to change their mind. 
but maybe we aren't just hurling insults. You know, yeah, no, maybe we can stay in relationship and not excommunicate each other. Yeah. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to hit you with a tough question, Julie. And okay. Some of it, some of it's what we're talking about right now, but anyway, so one of the reasons I love the book is because sometimes uh, I'm a very optimistic person, but sometimes I get a little pessimistic of the current adults. And I'm like, okay, like the most I can do is help my son become a critical thinker mm. uh, because we might be done for or whatever. But <laughs> what I'm, what I'm wondering in your opinion, like, uh, what, what is like the biggest mistake that parents are making when it comes to raising critical thinkers? Like we all think we're teaching our kids to think critically, but sometimes we're just indoctrinating them with our beliefs. And then it creates this cycle, right? Like for example, in such a polarized totally. world, we're having, we're having kids take on the political beliefs of their parents. And then, you know, those kids are going to go up to, you know, high school, college and da, 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 da. And then they're going to have kids and they're going to force it down their throats and all these other things. So I don't know if, if that's one of the biggest mistakes we're making, or like, is it that parents aren't becoming humble and realizing they don't have all the answers from your point of view, what are, what are some of the big mistakes that we're making as parents before we could start teaching our kids to be critical thinkers? Yeah. So parents all enter into the parental propaganda campaign from the time the baby is born. And their goal is to indoctrinate them into the family system that is comfortable for adults. We see this from the mm. beginning. We ask the question, should the baby be allowed to cry to sleep or do we feed it? Uh, does the baby get potty trained before two or after two? Is the baby allowed to um, eat sugar? Is the baby allowed to? We're deciding all these things for our kids from a very early age. And we start training them into our belief system even right down to things like, hey, five-year-old child, it's time for dinner, go wash your hands. And your five-year-old says back to you, I hate washing my hands, I'm not going to. Do we come back and say, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. What is it about hand washing that is objectionable to you? I'm kind of curious now. Yeah. Well, I hate the water. Oh, is it temperature or the way it feels? I don't like the water. Okay, well, let's turn on the water. I'm gonna get a thermometer and tell me when the water stops bugging you. And we're gonna measure the temperature of the water and see if yeah. any of these work. Like, do we do that? That is not what we do. What we say is, according to science, there are these things called invisible germs and they live on your hands. And if you touch your food and eat it, it will make you sick. But here's yeah. the crazy thing. This child knows nothing about science. They've eaten plenty of stuff straight off the floor and not gotten sick. So <laughs> are you actually telling the truth or is this just mm. indoctrination into a family habit? When we talk about critical thinking, it's not just about whether or not you watch a certain cable news channel. It's actually empowering your kids to collect their own data, to observe their own experience, to provide them with more than one option, like taking that data about the water, maybe saying, okay, we're gonna roll the dice and you don't have to wash your hands at all this week when you eat dinner and let's see if you get sick. Like what would happen? Yeah. Would, we be, would we all survive? Would we not survive? Are we in a COVID moment where that's too risky? If so, can we admit that we are now holding them accountable to something they didn't choose for themselves and name it that way? I get that you really don't want to wash your hands and I have information that's not meaningful to you yet. What can I do to make it better for you? Can we use hand sanitizer? Can we use a wipe? Because I need this to happen, but I really understand that right now you can't see it my way. This is how we grow a thinker. But yeah. that's not what we do. We spend a lot of time trying to get our kids to obey, to behave, yeah. to parrot the family lines. 
and it starts with behavior. It doesn't start with politics. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. Like, so I, I've developed, I've adopted this, uh, kind of way of living where I try to, I try to not be what I dislike. Right. And something that drove me nuts when I was a child, like the thing that made me just want to scream was because I said so. Right. And I'm oh, like, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, and, and this is at a young age, like eight, nine years old. I'm like, I need more than that. I need, I need a thought process. I need an explanation. Right. So anyways, as a father, I've tried to never do that. But anyways, let me ask you this, Julie, yeah. because it is hard as a parent to have a child push back on you, right? Because you're like, I have decades of experience yes, and you right? just entered this world, right? But but uh, I, I've tried to develop a, a, a household where my son can challenge me. If I ask him to do something or I tell him to do something and he pushes back and asks why or anything like that, I, I do my best to resist every urge to say, because I said so. So anyways, like what are some uh, tools we can adopt yeah. to get over that discomfort of a child like pushing back? But but I, I feel like it's helped letting my, my son knows he can ask questions about anything. He's 13 That's right. now, you know? That's right. So like pushing through my own discomfort of that has helped him along the way. So I know it was beneficial, but I don't know. Are there any, any tips? Oh, there are. The first, the first tip is be really proud of your kid for not thinking like you. Just change how you see it. When mm. they say that they have a belief, I, I remember this happening with one of my kids. He was 15 years old, uh, couldn't vote yet, obviously, but he's always been really interested in politics. Today, he's a human rights lawyer. So that gives you a, a vision of the trajectory he was actually on in high school. So he came to me about this social issue that was on the ballot in Ohio not going to name it because I don't want to animate everybody's imagination with pro or con. Yeah. And he gave me an argument for pro. He went and found all these articles. He had really good logic. He had some science to back up what he thought I should believe. He got to the end of it and he said, I said, wow, that's impressive. And that logic makes so much sense. And I like those authorities that you cited. He goes, so are you going to vote pro? I said, no, I'm going to vote con. And then tears sprung from his eyes and he said, I count on you to be logical. And um, <laughs> I started laughing and I said, yeah, but you never asked me like what my position was, where it came from, but yeah. I'm more than willing not to tell you my position. I, I was happy to hear yours because you're providing me with information I haven't considered yet. Um, I've considered some of it and gone a different direction, but yeah. this isn't a moment where there's one right answer. There's your answer. There's mine. And they're in conflict right now. And over the years, he and I have had many, many conversations. In fact, I think on that issue, I've shifted uh, over time because of my own children. But what I was trying to do in the moment was really value his independent thinking, that we were not aligned. I didn't feel any incentive whatsoever to talk him out of it, mm -hmm. to tell him why my view made more sense. And I had those decades long feeling like you did. But here's the thing. You know, you made the comment that parents indoctrinate. And then they're going to have kids who indoctrinate. But that's not really what happens. Hmm. How many of your parents' views do you still have as a grown-up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, hearing your story, <laughs> I'm thinking you rejected a whole load of them. Oh, yeah, and, for sure. Right? <laughs> and so we need to give our children credit yeah. for the power of their own minds and the way that you keep them from having to go so far on a bender to prove they don't align with the family system is to actually celebrate when they show a little independence in their own thinking or ask some hard questions. 
here's the other thing to remember. A 15-year-old has a set of beliefs that are very unrefined. They're usually very knee-jerk. They're very black and white. And by the time they're 45, they'll be nuanced because yeah. it's not what happened to you. It's not what happened to me. So trust this journey a little bit more. I think we can be a lot kinder to each other and not imagine that everything is a zero-sum match. Yeah, no, no, very, very well said. And uh, this, this just randomly popped into my head, right? Because so it's something I'm doing, like, I, I always try to help, help my son, like, just ask the right questions and do the right, you know, and come to his own conclusions. Well, anyways, so we've gotten into, we've gotten like really into like Legos and selling some of his old Legos Love and stuff it. like that. So we're, we hopped on eBay and everything. Like the first one he sold, this little tiny figure worth $200, right? But anyways, yeah, so he's going through because we recently moved, we're clearing it out and we listed a bunch. So I'm kind of managing it, but I try to get him to make the decisions. I'm trying to teach him a little bit about business. But anyways, nice people, you know, on eBay, people can send an offer, right? So if you list something for $25, after we do the research, here's how much we think it's worth, blah, blah, blah. So you listen for 25, they, uh, they make an offer of $20, right? So this is the question, right? So I try to present him with the information, right? So this person offered it. Let's look at how much we think it's worth, how much we look, taking all these factors. But I want him to come to the conclusion because I don't want to be like, this is what I would do. Sometimes I ask him, like, do you want my opinion? Do you want to know what I think? But there's this balance because sometimes I feel like I'm not. I'm not giving enough of my experience. And like, I'm like, am I doing him a disservice by like, trying to leave them out on the deserted island a little bit too much. You know what I mean? Where do you find that balance with giving giving some of your experience, but also letting them figure out their own answers? And so ask them, ask them, yeah. do you want my advice? Would that be helpful to you right now? I do yeah. have thoughts. I'm happy to offer them if you want them. Part of what I think we're always looking for is like the right steps, but yeah. you just make the steps <laughs> you make. If you really see something that looks like, let's say it's fraud and he's not good enough yet at detecting that, you don't want him mm. to end up in a fraudulent situation. But if it's a question of five or $10, then having him make that judgment call for himself yeah. might be valuable. My son, Jacob, the same one we were just talking about, he wanted to go to space camp when he was like mm. 12. He wanted to do it when he was turning 12, but he was like 10 at the time. And we didn't have the money. It was like 850 bucks for him to go. And so I made the typical maternal comment. Oh, that would be nice, but it could never happen. But his father looked at him and he said, well, what if you raise the money? And Jacob's like, well, how would I do that? And John said, well, people really like warm chocolate chip cookies. What if you just made them and took orders in the neighborhood and delivered them every Sunday night? And I thought, yeah, that's going to work once. You'll get all the pity from people and then they'll never <laughs> do it again. Yeah. Um, we had one family still ordering cookies for seven years. It it continued. Yeah, he spent like $4,000 on cookies when we added it all up at the end. It was hilarious. That's crazy. But Jacob actually did raise the money. He did some um, cookie drives uh, back when they allowed you to do that in front of Walmart or Kroger's. But then he also had regular customers in our neighborhood. And so the deal we made with him, and I the reason I'm telling this story is the temptation is to be like, teach him to manage a spreadsheet, make sure he knows the cost of the goods, da-da-da-da-da. But that wasn't our goal. Our yeah. goal was for him to feel empowered to go to space camp. So we supplied all mm. of the materials for free and he cleared the full amount of money. So we took the financial hit on the actual cookies. And the biggest responsibility he had 
was to actually do the work and remember to do it so that yeah. he would grow that skill for himself. Fast forward into adulthood, he's raised hundreds of thousands of dollars in scholarships and funds for himself because the main lesson he learned is if he wants something, he can go get the money to get it. And so yeah. that's when you're thinking about your kids, you support them to help them get their goal, but you don't have to turn it into some kind of training camp where, well, if they don't do the whole thing, then it doesn't count. Our yeah. kids still need us. They still, yeah. he still needed a ride to the supermarket, right? He still needed us to go get the brown sugar. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that story. And, and yeah, that's definitely something, you know, I, I hope to teach my son is to empower him. Like, Hey, right. there's, there are solutions out there. We just got to figure out how we're going to, you know, get to them. You know, there's, that's a, right. there's a ton of options out there. You know, I always, I always say parents can give three things to their kids, transportation, because they can't drive money because they don't have any. So either you help them earn it or they get it from you. Or you figure out a way to barter, you know, work for the thing they want. And then the final thing is research. That's mm. the gift of an adult. You know the Google terms. You have a better understanding of how the world works. So if you have a kid who's interested in space and then you're like, well, there's actually an observatory in my town. He doesn't even know to ask for that at age nine. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that's what we can really provide our kids is, hey, here are opportunities to help you dream big. What yeah. I, what business calls a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. So when we, when we're talking about critical thinking, something I'm always, you know, just kind of tossing around in my brain and it's always up for debate. And there's, you know, I, I, I come from a family of teachers. My grandma was a teacher for like 40 years, you know, well, my mom uh, became a college professor, you know, of psychology and everything. And uh, I have a lot of friends who are teachers. I know the struggles that they go through. Like we have overcrowded classrooms and, oh, yeah. you know, they're given a curriculum and all this. But anyways, when it comes to teaching critical thinking, right, and certain topics and everything, uh, I've, I've, I've personally come to a place where I'm like, here's what school teaches. Here's what's my responsibility as a parent to teach my kid, right? But you talk a lot about, you know, school and the school system and all these other things like, where, where do you see that balance of the things that you think that, you know, the education system could be doing better or are these primary, uh, primarily supposed to be taught at home? Because I'm, I'm of the, and, and you did homeschooling, right? So right. <laughs> your perspective's a lot different, but, but yeah, I, because I just don't know, um, if there should be like a class where it's like, we're teaching media literacy, scientific literacy yes. and all yes, these yes, things. Yes. Like, that's something I, I do at my house, you know? I mean, if your school isn't doing it, then yes, you do it at your house. But it's interesting that you brought that up because K through 12 um, education is going through a revolution and media literacy is the number one subject that curriculum is being developed for right oh, now really? that's new. If you think about the 20th century, the literature that got contributed during that 100 year period was visual. So if you go back to the 19th century, like you had to draw nature in a nature journal, right? You, you yeah. had to go to a museum and see a work of art and then remember it in your imagination. But the 20th century came along and suddenly we've got film and television. And now we have obviously the internet and all kinds of visual media that are available to us, magazines with photographs, right? Like, although yeah. magazines are a dying thing, but we had yeah. that during the 20th century. So what we're being invited to consider is that it's not just literacy, it's actually literature in the same way that books are. 
And yeah. we want our kids to have that skill, that ability to evaluate and experience what they're viewing. So one of the things my husband and I used to always do, he's a literature professor. When we would watch movies, he'd always pull out the, um, the remote control and he would pause and he'd say, okay, who are we rooting for right now? Who are we rooting against, right? Uh, then we'd go a little further and he'd be like, what do you think the next logical action is in this story? You know, what has to happen for this story to end? What yeah. ending would really make us mad? What ending would make us feel really good? Which ending do we think this story is going to have? So that you're actually helping your kids engage visual media the same way we would with, um, with books. Yeah. But we start to teach them not to be passive recipients. Now, to be fair, uh, if you do that for every movie, your child will hate you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I do remember specifically, my mom told me a funny story. She came to babysit our kids one time when we were like away for the weekend and Jacob was five. And all of a sudden the movie's playing and he brings her the remote and he says, Grandma, pause the movie. This is where we talk about it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, so this was a deep habit in our family. And it has continued to be, they're all adults now. And my kids constantly commenting on music, on movies, on articles they're reading. And it's like this high engaged discussion about yeah. all their consumption that we started yeah. when they were young. So for me, that's the goal. The goal isn't to script what they think. It's to show them the tools that help them see how they think. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, let me tell you why I love that story so much, because that's that's something we that's something we do in our oh, household. Good. So one one of the things I wanted to ask you um, is like, I feel like when when you release a book like yours out into the world, right, like parents are busy, parents are stressed. There are some parents who are working, you know, two jobs. Right. Are, and right. and when they, they think about like, and that's one of the reasons why this debate comes up between parenting and school. It's like, no, yes. my kid goes to school. That's where the learning happens. My job, keep a roof yes. over the head, have a little fun with them or whatever. But anyways, <laughs> uh, I've tried to become creative with how I can do these things that we watch, you know, we watch movies together, TV shows. Um, I actually was just interviewing um, uh, Matthias Clayson. He researches horror, right? Ah. And we've kind of got into scary movies. But anyways, as a, and like, I don't directly tell my son, hey, I'm trying to develop your critical thinking skills. But while we're watching like a horror movie, like, I'll be like, Dylan, do you think that was a good idea what they just did? Or what would you do in this yeah. situation? So I try to just like, kind of like massage it into things I that love we're Perfect. already doing. So uh, I guess like, what are, what are some other like easy, easy yep. ways to kind of like work these things in without feeling like you have to create your own homeschooling curriculum? No, exactly. Like I mean, one of the things about my book is that it's highly practical. There are yeah. activities for kids between five and 18. I break them into three age categories and they're all things that you'll read it and know exactly what to do right now. One of the activities I have is called says who. So when you're reading with your kids, whatever they're reading, just ask the question, says who? What viewpoint is this coming to you in? Which viewpoint is excluded? Which viewpoint could I retell this story in? And how would that change the story? That's very easy. You can be with a seven-year-old doing a read-aloud book, you know, a little picture book, and ask that question. Um, other things that you can do is disrupt their expectations. So you read the book from back to front. You open the book to the middle of the book and ask them, 
can we tell from this page what this story is about? How do we know who's in charge on this page? Do we think that's the main telling teller of the story or is this a sub character? We can start to introduce like this variety of questions. Another thing we can do is create a thing I call the wall of questions, where every question your child asks for several days a week goes on a post-it note and you stick it on a sliding glass door or a whiteboard or a door and you don't answer it. Even questions like, you know, what's a black hole or why did Johnny get the blue tube brush when mom knows that's my favorite color, right? Like you can put any question and as you do it, just tell your kids, we'll talk about them Sunday night at dinner, but I just want to see how many questions we think of this week and in what categories and Here's a pen and the post-its feel free to add at any random moment. You will be amazed at just creating space for questions. Your kids will turn inward and discover they have some. And they will even sometimes build on existing ones. Then at Sunday night, start peeling them off over dinner, pull out your phone, answer a few, have a few conversations. Think about different ways that you might research. So the idea is to create a context where having original thoughts asking questions, evaluating Mm -hmm. sources of authority, being in conversation with your kids and being more fascinated by them rather than trying to convert them to your writer views uh, will lead to a natural growth in critical thinking. It's not about mastering a bunch of bias categories. That is not what this book is about. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) no, absolutely. And and I love that too. Like I, I, I encourage my son on a daily basis to just ask questions. We've been, you know, learning all these new things about this little Lego adventure we're going on, like, because it's like custom things you can build and everything. And I'm learning, and I'm learning there's a lot of issues with the websites and programs people have created. So I'm figuring it out. But as I'm teaching him, I'm like, hey, ask questions. Like, if if you're wondering, could something be done better? And even around the house, if we're working on like, we, we just recently built some furniture, like ask me if you think it, like if there's another way of doing this, because my brain might not be thinking of what your mind might come up with. So right. I always want to ask the questions. But uh, the other thing is, and I think this is something a lot of us parents struggle with too, is we hate seeing our kids struggle. We hate seeing our kids fail. Oh, right? for sure. And from a young age, like just knowing technology is available. When my son would be like, hey, my Xbox isn't working. I'm like, did you check YouTube and see if anybody else has had that problem? You know, I just send them out there to figure it out. But sometimes Love I'm it. like, am I being a jerk? Right. But we don't we don't like our kids struggling. We don't liking, like our kids fail. So like in the book, I, you talk a lot about, you know, like these low stakes types of situations. So is that the best way to get over? Like, what can we do as a parent to not just like kind of baby our child along and solve all their problems? Like, let them screw up. Like on that business venture, your son went on, like maybe he sold some cookies and only made 50 bucks. Like, okay, cool. Like they're going to be sad or whatever. That's but right. How do we get over that coddling, you know? I think it's really um, a, a mindset shift, right? Mm. So like I said, parents are a massive resource to their children and we want to be. But we want to think about if what we're doing is doing for them or supporting their growth. So those are the questions I always ask. And occasionally, you know, it's good to do for them. I book the dentist appointments. They're never going to book a dentist appointment. That's not in their wheelhouse when they're a kid. So there are certain things that I do take over and I make happen. But when it's something they care about and when there is a skill that is associated with it, that they have the capability of doing for themselves. Offering that moral support, 
some suggested, you know, search terms uh, saying, take a look and then I'll come help you in a minute. Like creating just that little bit of distance is great, but you can also ask them directly. Is this something you need me to sit next to you to do? Or would you like to do this on your own? And I'll only come if you need me. What we, I think, try to do is we do a lot of mind reading as parents. And we're kind, mm. kind of in this, uh, this mode, like our child's disposition isn't the issue. It's what we think is best. But I love asking my kids stuff. Uh, and maybe I learned this because of homeschooling. But like if they start acting up while they're working on a worksheet or working through math problems, the question that I ask isn't, why aren't you cooperating with my agenda? It's, what's going on with this math right now? Can you check in with your body? Are, are, you, are you bored? Are, yeah. are you feeling restless? Do you need to just get up and chase the dog in the backyard for a few minutes? Or is this process too easy for you? Or is it too hard yeah. for you? Do you need help? Should I add M&Ms? Like, let's troubleshoot with the reality of the child, not with our fantasy of who they should be. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I have a little bit more of your time. So I want to focus this last bit on something I'm very passionate about, which is games and video games and all these oh, other good. things. Because <laughs> you had a great section in the book on that. So I've been a lifelong gamer. Like I got the original Nintendo when I was like four or five years old. Amazing. And, you know, I, I ended up getting into like professional video games and traveled the world. I've seen the glory of this, but there's a lot of stigmatization around it. But anyways... One of my son's favorite games in the world is Zelda. He started playing this game, oh, Zelda yeah. Breath of the Wild. And I remember like, cause this came, came out five or six years ago. So he was maybe seven or eight. Okay. And the puzzles in that game, like I would sit there and watch him and watching him solve these puzzles. I'm like, my son's a genius because I, I have know. no idea what to do. I but but uh, I see so many benefits. Like there's so much problem solving and everything like that. But anyways, the the obviously the section I loved in your book where you, you talk about your son, he's really into like, you know, board games and everything and like the way he goes through his instructions. But anyways, from the mouth of Julie, can you explain why games are not this terrible thing that we should be afraid of and how they can help develop with critical thinking skills for our children? Yeah, you know, I... um my kids came along with me, right, um, where the internet was new when they were young. So they did a lot of computer gaming first and it wasn't online. So it was just in the household. And I asked my oldest son not that long ago in the last year or two, what, what's one of your favorite childhood memories? And he said, the day that dad, Jacob and I played Bolo all day. It was just this tank game. And yeah. he said, without any interruption, I thought, wow, that's so fascinating because a lot of times this uninterrupted play is the thing they are longing for. And we rarely give that to them. But I imagined and remembered how I was in like a dance marathon in college where I danced for 24 hours straight. Dang. And nobody, <laughs> nobody told me I wasn't allowed to do that because I wouldn't get good sleep and I'd be hungry and my body would be tired. They were like, good for you raising money for a charity. And I, I often think with our kids, like, wouldn't it be amazing if they said, I want to play a game for 24 hours. We're like, great. I will yeah. pay this much money to your favorite charity if you make it this many hours, right? Like, like actually indulge kind of the joy of that. But here's, here's what I want to talk about. So the research 20 years ago was very protective of children and afraid of new technology. Mm. This is a trend 
every time something new comes along. When I was a child, it was television. Don't be too close. It's going to hurt your eyes. Don't turn it on too loud. It's going to hurt your ears. Don't watch too long. You won't grow up to be a successful thinking adult. You know, we called it the boob tube, right? Like there was all that kind of, and my whole generation now watches cable news all day. Like that's so hilarious to me. We (laughs) all still watch TV and Netflix and binge watching. So all those in counterindications did not stop the power of that visual media. So the big question we have to ask is, what role do these visual media um, opportunities play in the lives of children? And what the research is showing in these longitudinal studies around video games is actually pretty exciting. It's better than television because you are involved. You're adopting a character. You're making decisions. You are entering into cooperative play with other players, often from other countries. And you are learning um, a lot of valuable skills that feel adult. And this Mm -hmm. is the key I want to sort of hone in on. A computer or a gaming console is a sophisticated piece of equipment. It feels very grown up. Do we let our kids use a power drill? or a buzzsaw, how often do we give them a tool worthy of their fascination? Mm-hmm. You know, we're like, get off of your video game and sit on a couch and think of something to do. If you want your kids to get off the video game, hand them a book of matches and send them outside and tell them to burn things. They will get up and leave. But we don't yeah. give them enough risk and adventure in their real lives because we yeah. protect them so much that video games is the frontier where risk and adventure and storytelling and power are available to them on this adult machine. So what the research is showing is that kids who game between seven and 10 hours a week are able to self-regulate emotionally better than kids who don't play at all. They are showing that they are gaining a certain facility with troubleshooting problems, resource management, the capacity to improve gameplay, which means reflecting on your previous choices and strategies and improving them. And these are skills they can use in lots of spaces. It's not just in gameplay. So I agree very much with you. Um, Every parent is going to have their own version of boundaries around gameplay. That's fine. But do we have to come from a place of fear? What if we come from a place of celebration? Yeah, yeah. Something that I noticed immediately when uh, COVID hit 2020 and the lockdowns happened, um, because you mentioned like these relationships, right? Some of my son's best friends on the entire planet live in, I, I think it's Lincoln, Nebraska. Right. They met on Xbox in Fortnite a few years ago or whatever. And they hop on and they talk. And but anyways, when lockdown happened and kids were forced to stay inside, we were all afraid that kids were going to catch COVID, give it to the grandparents and parents and all these other things. Like there were a lot of kids who were struggling. But because my son had so many relationships that he developed online, he was still able to interact and socialize. So it was almost like I was living in a different world when I saw all the people like, oh my God, the kids aren't socializing. They're going to go crazy and everything like that. But I'm like, well, thank goodness for online gaming because my son's been able to to talk with his friends. So I guess the last thing that I would ask you, uh, I know it's like kind of different parent to parent and all this other stuff, but where is this kind of balance? Because we're, we're even talking about like smartphones, tablets, all the technology. Where do you think that balance is between being on technology and then going out in the real world, doing activities and all that kind of stuff? I mean, I think 
part of it is we have to examine our own use of technology, right? Like if you're an adult who has their phone in their hand all the time, and then you're <laughs> saying to your kids, you're not allowed on yours or on your computer or on your gaming console, it's a little bit hypocritical. One of the things that I recommend inside Raising Critical Thinkers is to dedicate some time to cultivating deep attention focus states. And I talk about deep reading, which means putting oh. your phone in a completely different room, turn it off and reading together individually. So each person has their own book. You read for 15 minutes. You allow yourself to drop into a deep attention focus state. Mm. This can also happen, however, with hobbies. You know, give your child a sewing machine. Have them learn to knit. Give them access to oil paints and an easel. Give them something worthy of their investment. Yeah. And if you are going to limit the computer gaming or the console gaming, Make it very clear what those limits are. So is it only in the afternoons? Be consistent. Don't be sort of capricious about when they can play. And then, oh, you get a little annoyed because it just feels like too much. And so you tell them to get off. Let them really know. Yeah, you know what? Every day from two to seven, you know, two to six till dinner, uh, I, you have jurisdiction over your choices. You can play on the game console or you can use one of these other things that we have available. But in the mornings, you know, of course, if your kids are in school, they're already mm -hmm. not at home. For homeschoolers, this is a really big deal because they're home 24-7. Yeah. Um, so pick the hours with your child. Check in with them. Did you get enough gameplay this week? Did it feel like it wasn't enough? Why not? Like, ask that question. Yeah. How about that question instead yeah. of, oh, no, it seems like too much to me. Your kids will feel free to get off the computer or the gaming console if they know that that isn't going to lead to greater restriction. Yeah. But if they think that you're sort of hunting around for restrictions, they're going to milk every last minute you give them because they're <laughs> so afraid you're going to take it away from them. Yeah. And I, I love it. Like the last thing I'll say is, and you touched on this a few times during this conversation is like, give them something else that's that's worthy like i can't yes. tell you like my son is a is a gamer right but yes. there's so many times where i'm like hey you want to go do this and he's like heck yeah and he'll yes. just tell his friends hey gotta go and we'll go do something that's like, right so they'll, they'll and, go that's right and yeah. there's they're like get their bodies doing things that feel challenging not just organized sports right yeah there is just so many other ways to spend your time than being on a gaming console. But that is where the action is for a lot of kids. The yeah. alternative to them feels like sitting on a couch. Yeah, and just staring at the wall. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, Julie, I appreciate you coming on. I could talk to you all day. Uh, you, had, you had such a great book. I got it. I binged it. So for everybody uh, curious, where can they find you, your work? And I think the book is out everywhere, but correct me if I'm wrong, where can no, they find it? No, it is. Yeah, so the book is found on any place you buy books. You can go to RaisingCriticalThinkers.com and download a free book club guide that goes with it if you want to read it in a group. And all of the buttons are there for purchasing it. The audio book is narrated by me. So if you found my voice, please. I loved it. Loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, and then if you have interest in a different way of teaching writing to your children, whether they're in traditional school or homeschool, BraveWriter.com has online classes that run from three to six weeks. And then we also have supplemental materials that really help to develop this sort of imaginative side of learning that is very congruent with the way I write in Raising Critical Thinkers. So either of those places are good.
Beautiful. And what's what's the best social media to find you at? I found uh, you on Twitter, but I'm like, oh, is she more active on Instagram? Where can we find you on social? I, I am active on Instagram the most. And that uh, Instagram handle is Julie Brave Writer. Uh, and then on Twitter, it's just Brave Writer. And I do actually participate on both. So that's great. I love that you found me on Twitter. That's so yeah, great. Yeah, no, I love it. So beautiful. Julie, you are amazing. I really, really love the work that you're doing. So yeah, when the next book comes out, we'll be doing this again. All right. I love it. And good luck to you as a parent of a beautiful 13-year-old. You sound like you're doing all the right things. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Julie Bogart. I could talk to her all day about this stuff, but you know, we can only talk so much. Then, then comes the action. Then comes what we have to do as adults to help our kids. And, you know, like we discussed too, when we're teaching our kids, the importance of critical thinking or just the different tools and skills and all that, it also helps us right like i've noticed as a father when i'm talking or teaching my son about something it helps me get back to those things it's it's like the fundamentals right with anything you know when i think about my sobriety or mental health or whatever you know after a while you get into this groove and you forget just like the basics and the fundamentals so when we're teaching others when we're teaching our children it helps us as well and you know, as we discussed, like Julie's book is not only full of different strategies, but like she gives uh, little little things that you can do, little practices that you can do uh, at the end of different chapters. And they're so, so simple to just easily, easily intertwine with our days. And, you know, I, I hate that we have to discuss like, oh, how do we how do we uh, teach our kids about critical thinking without it becoming like another thing on our to do list? Like, in reality, like if it was up to me, if I thought like priorities, I would put this towards the top of the list above some other things, you know, that we do, you know, because uh, with, with so much misinformation and the way that, you know, social media is out there and we all know how easily people, not just kids, but how easily people can fall down rabbit holes. And when we're not asking the right questions, when we don't think what's incentivizing the person on the opposite side of this screen or this podcast or this book, when we're not thinking about what their incentives are, when we're not taking multiple perspectives, you know, uh, there's, there's so many bad things that can happen. So I, I really appreciate uh, Julie's out here putting in the work, writing a book. So make sure you head down the description, Follow her uh, over on social media, check out her website. And most importantly, like I said, grab a copy of this book and grab multiple copies and just make it rain. Just give everybody a copy of this book. All right. But before I let you go, uh, a couple of things, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. I love chatting with all of you and getting like book recommendations. And also you won't miss any upcoming episodes. All right. And uh, some easy things you could do to help support the podcast share it, share this episode. If you thought that Julie and I had an interesting conversation, share it with your friends, family members, put on social media, send out in your email, whatever, whatever your favorite medium is. Uh, another thing that helps out is, is leaving a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. 
all this stuff really helps out with the algorithms too to help us reach more people and grow this lovely community okay uh some other things that you can do to help out uh some of you are listening to this episode a day early and that's because you support uh the podcast over on substack so if you become a paid subscriber over on substack it's five bucks a month or fifty dollars for the year and you get all the episodes a day early that helps out a lot uh you can check out the books i've written over at the rewired soul.com or self-publishing books on mental health, addiction recovery, uh, my experience being canceled, which really got me into critical thinking and a lot of these other topics that we dive into on here. So you can check those out. And lastly, um, I've, I've mentioned mental health all the time. It's a huge part of my life. So if you are interested in therapy, there's a link down below. It's an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, it's a service that I've personally used it's helped me out a ton. Uh, so if you want something that's affordable, convenient, and you can do it from the comfort of your own home, uh, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right. But anyways, another huge thanks to Julie for taking the time to come on the podcast. Make sure you grab a copy of her book. And yeah, for all of you, have an amazing rest of your day. And I will see you next week with a brand new episode.